0: But am I really going to customize a soap to gift it to somebody? I have no idea what to gift that person. I have no idea what Jacqueline wants on her skin. I don't know if John wants charcoal, even if it sounds very manly. (laughs) Clearly, I'm
1: manly enough that that charcoal would play.
0: (laughs) It's an exfoliator,
2: John, just so you know. (laughs) My face is
1: bright red in the next episode. Like, thanks,
2: Mina. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, hey everyone and welcome to Another Bite where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory and I'm joined by John.
1: Hey, how's it going?
2: Jacqueline. Hi. And Mina. Hey, hey, everybody. Mina and Jacqueline are the hosts over at the Product Boss podcast. And because today's episode revolves around gadgets, some new spins on age old products, we thought, hey, what better way to connect with Shark Tank lovers than to talk about some real life business tactics and creative strategy about physical products? I mean, did we just become best friends? <laughs> but before we get into any of that, you know what time it is it's ad time. Over 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support, so you can grow beyond your wildest dreams, boosting leads and ramping up sales along the way. They even have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. Plus, with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save up to 90% off your first year, to see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot and take your growth to new heights, visit HubSpot.com startups. All right, so first in the tank, we have Bala Bangles. And Bala Bangles comes to us from founders Max and Natalie, and they're asking for $400,000 for a 10% stake in their business. That's a $4 million valuation. And their product is Bala Bangles. They are the world's first stylish wearable weights. And you know, the point of wearing weights when you're working out is really to increase heart rate and to build some more muscle, but you know, it's time to leave the 80s in the past. Who wants to be dealing with those sand ankle weights? Just like the fashion of old, it's time to innovate in this space. So thinking about Ball of bangles, the many pastel colors that they gave to us in their pitch, and some of their initial business tactics
0: that we got from their pitch, what are our initial thoughts of the product? I loved it. I think that they hit the nail on the head with their branding and their audience. And even their pitch was really great. The dynamic of the husband and the wife, the nod to the 80s, and how they made it more aesthetically appealing for the times. I thought they did
3: really great. For me, I think what was funny is as I was watching the pitch, I looked over and I was like, this sounds so familiar. And I realized that I actually had Bala Bengals on my desk because I just got a walking. Yes, I'll
1: show you right here. I'm not lying. Oh my gosh, she has bala bangles. bangles. (laughs) In
3: the periwinkle. And I think, I don't know if I got these off of like a FabFitFun box or something like that, but I was like, I know this brand. I will say, you know, now I know more about their brand, but I've actually had the product for a while. Why haven't you used the product though? That's interesting. I know, Right. Because I don't love working out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> That's the best reason, probably.
1: <laughs> this is starting to discredit you, Jacqueline, because I was like, this is the whole reason we had Jacqueline on the show to begin with is she's from LA and Workout she's into the fashion. over here. Yeah. Listen, as a man from Boston... I have no opinion about fashion and I have no opinion about physical fitness, okay? (laughs) So, you know, I think maybe Jacqueline out in LA might have a slightly sharper point of view about whether there could be product market fit for something like Bala Bangles, because I looked at them and I just thought they had no fitness benefit, Mm. they had no stylistic benefit, and it was just a gimmick that was never going to take off.
3: Mm. Well, interesting. I think we might have been proved wrong on that one. You know, I think what I loved about it, though, were the colors. If it didn't have the colors and it was just black, it maybe wouldn't have taken off as much as the fact that they had this beautiful variety of colors and very clean. Like the design aesthetic is Mm. super, super clean. So it felt different. It was a little bit more of that I don't know, high-end customer like the Apple Watch type
2: customer, Mm -hmm. right? Mm
0: -hmm.
3: That's why I find that so shocking, John, because I
2: feel like the athleisure potential of this product is huge. People love looking slim and stylish and throwing on, like you said, Jacqueline, their Apple Watch. The aesthetic is huge, especially if you're going to snap a pic for Instagram.
1: To me, one of the things I just really struggled with a little bit is like, how big is this market? Mm -hmm. How many people are actually going to buy ankle weights, even if fashionable. Like you have a set. You've never used them, Jacqueline. Mm -hmm. Mina, do you have ankle weights?
0: I have a knockoff pair. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) So a generic pair. And I think that her story is really relevant. She started it as a yoga instructor. And then you don't have to pick up weights. They're on your ankles. I think that where they could go with it is that they could go to walking economies like New York City and things like that. Mm. That was something that Dagny Dover did. I don't know if you know that brand. But they do neoprene backpacks. And their whole thing was living in the city, going from the office. To the gym and being very integrated in that lifestyle, and they would walk everywhere. Right, you're not keeping your gym bag in your car. And I think that that has really great appeal of somebody throwing one pound weights on because they're walking anyways, despite what John might think. uh,
2: As of this pitch year to date, their sales are 1.2 million. Right, unbelievable. Shocking to me, mind blowing. They had made 260000 in their first six months, and what I thought was interesting is they were already blended. They were 60% retail, 30% Amazon, and 10% direct-to-consumer, with some really impressive margins.
3: Yeah. I, the sharks' faces were like, what? I think they couldn't <laughs> yeah. believe how diversified they were and also how big the business was. And what I loved about them and why I probably, if I was a shark, I would have invested was that they were diversified. So they understood that it wasn't the single way. They weren't full-on direct-to-consumer and they were on Amazon. They had the hookup. That's what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like, Wow. They have a connection somewhere.
1: Yeah. We talk a lot on this podcast about like, what do they need from a shark? And typically it comes down to like, I either need like distribution help or I need manufacturing help, or I need like capital to scale. Or more often than not, we see it's that they actually need like basically celebrity. They need some weight behind it. And this felt like a perfect example of like, it's one of the most diversified companies from a distribution perspective we'd seen come on the show in a long time. It seemed like they've got incredible margins. They've got like a blended 50% net margin, which is really good. They can spend a lot more money promoting their product. It seemed like the thing maybe they were missing was a little bit of social capital to really just help it get over the turning point and actually start to really pick up speed. The fact that, you know, Maria Sharapova was on there was incredible for them. Obviously, Mark Cuban is another one in that space that has a lot of clout. And so it felt like this was like a clout play for them.
0: I kind of felt like they gave away too much equity. I don't know if they necessarily needed Maria Sharapova, in Mm. my opinion, because that's a lot of equity. Giving away 30% of your business, did they need 900,000? I'm not sure. They probably could have done with 450. If it was me, I would have done 450, Mark Cuban only 15%. And they would have had celebrity access. Their problem, they said, was inventory. Maybe Damon John would have helped with that. But I think Mark Cuban, with the alignment of celebrity, like what you were saying, John, I think was really important. I think that. It was a lot of equity. 30% is a lot of equity, in my opinion.
1: Well, I don't know what the demographics of the target market are here. What do you think male versus female?
0: Oh, all female.
1: All female.
2: At least a hard majority. Like 99% yeah, female. Say like 80
1: to 95%. And so you're like, okay, yeah, Mark Cuban has a lot of clout, but like Maria is like definitely a little bit more on the target market. And one of the things I was trying to figure out is like, what is an enduring endorsement for Maria Sharapova worth? Mm. Would you pay like $100,000, $250,000? Let's just say they wanted to pay cash for this endorsement. And then you can kind of back into like how much equity maybe she's worth.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. good point. And I wonder, they were talking about global distribution. So I think maybe she has more weight, perhaps globally. She might have some ties. I think you're right. They wanted that thing to kind of push them over the edge. It was a big deal. But it seemed like the sharks all wanted it. They all kind of saw the thing.
2: Yeah, they did. Yeah, it was a bit of a feeding frenzy actually, mm-hmm. like because everyone was suddenly trying to make deals with each other and find the best combination. And what I thought was actually interesting is definitely there was like a higher equity ask in the end, but it was one of the few times that like in terms of capital, the founders did ultimately walk away with like way more than they had come in asking for. What do you think is like the equivalent that they could be doing to get as much awareness around a product like this? Because sometimes I think that influencer marketing can be as risky as like virality. And you mentioned that there's potentially kind of like a reputation that they might be going up against with an endorsement from Maria. So like what would have been that really good alternative that you see for like a product like this?
0: I agreed with their strategy of bringing Mm. on celebrity, I didn't agree so much with Maria Sharapova specifically, giving her the same 15% that Mark Cuban is getting, who Mm -hmm. has so many connections. And Maria Sharapova, I mean, she's very talented, but she also has, I mean, a lot of beauty as her currency, right? It's not the vibe, I think, for the current trend. It really is about all bodies, that sort of thing. And you can even see it against people speaking out against like the Kardashians and Hailey Mm -hmm. Bieber. They're Mm -hmm. more... Selena Gomez and Taylor Swift, you know what I mean? Like the icon next door sort of person. I love the fact that they are going with celebrity, that they're going with the prestige brand because people will knock them off and they think they have. Mm -hmm. And that way they need to set themselves apart. I think even the yoga part of it is really cool um, because there's so much in wellness now. People really are thinking about sleep, about wellness, about light, exercising, about movement, you know, really incorporating that into their lives. And so when they see, you know, a celebrity doing that, I think that's super helpful. Like I said, I don't know if I would have gone necessarily with giving Maria 15 additional percentage of the business.
3: I think for me, when you're asking what would have been different, you know, I think that they were already on a track. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. if they didn't
0: give away like that much. Yeah, that's what Mr. Wonderful said. Yeah. He said, are you sure you're going to want to give away 30% because you're already on a ramp? Yes. You know? Because when they
3: came out and the Sharks had this feeding frenzy, I would have maybe taken a moment and been like, "Mm, wow, they all see something really big here. So I think... The idea of them going and getting these two partners that had a lot of ideas and one of them's a fitness star and so they could use her and like her beautiful self. But I think that might be the thing, too, that it actually gave it as a piece of equipment, that kind of clout that maybe they needed.
1: You know, you look at the path like something like the whoop band. I don't know if you see that ton of whoop bands, but like I bought a whoop band. And part of the reason I bought a whoop band was because I see tons of golfers, tons of athletes wearing them. And so to me, it like has this extra amount of credibility to it where I think I could probably get very similar readings on an Apple watch. You know what I mean? And I also could get text message capabilities, but instead I have like a band without those, but it feels more legitimate to me and more like like real fitness health equipment.
3: Yeah, that makes sense, especially with the athletes, like real athletes.
0: I actually looked up where they are now, and it's something like 22 million. It's crazy. Wow. So they are really doing amazing things. They actually dropped bangles from their name because of them getting knocked off. So now they're coming out with like Pilates bars and, you know, little hoop thingies and yoga mats, that sort of thing. And so they've really expanded upon that because they became known for those bangles, but now they really need to get way, way ahead of their competition. competition because of that. And everything is so aesthetically beautiful. I mean, so minimalist, so color perfect. And I thought, gosh, they are really going in the right direction. So no matter what, they really blew up during 2020 and they really carried their business to really big heights.
3: So I think overall, they just had such a cue into aesthetic that they were right where it was like, this is in the eighties. Again, it's that like iPhone generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. ultimately Bala Bangles did seal the deal with Maria and Mark for
2: $900,000 for 30% in their company and definitely still a company that's around. It's important to know that Bala Bangles hit at the beginning of the pandemic. It was in February of 2020. And I think a lot of their success has definitely been helped by that. Like we need to stay moving during this uh, very strange time but ultimately, the company made $15 million by the end of the year that the wow. episode aired, which was in 2020. And now you can find these weights almost anywhere. So you can buy them in like Anthropology or Saks Fifth Avenue, Dick's Sporting Goods, Dillard's. They are very accessible at one of those many stores. Definitely still a company and definitely still successful as a company. And apparently, according to Mina, also moving into other things besides ankle weights. So if you need
3: a yoga mat, you know, look for Bala. They're really cute. They have curves at the end. They do. everything's got that
2: curve uh, that people
1: are used to. So it's yeah. so funny. I'm trying to not have curve. You,
3: know? <laughs> you won't have
2: curves <laughs> if you're using Bala again. Hire them
3: for the marketing. <laughs> All
2: right. Well, next in the tank, we have The Mad Optimist. And you know it's going to be a good pitch when you get your founders running in in lab coats and hair caps. So our founders, Mohammed, Mohammed, and Anthony, come to us asking for $60,000 for a 10% stake in their company. That's a $600,000 valuation. And their product is The Mad Optimist, which is a vegan-friendly, customizable soap and body care company. Everything's vegan, halal, non-GMO, gluten-free, and cruelty-free. Another differentiator is that you can design your entire product. You go online, you can pick the scent, you can pick the look, you can even customize the label. But what really sets this company apart is actually when you go online, you can buy your products on a sliding price scale. So ultimately, it's actually the customers that choose how much to pay for their products. And really the idea behind this is the founders wanted to make sure that premium products were accessible to more people than they might traditionally be if they had a set price. So thinking about our product, our very friendly founders, and ultimately this business model, which I don't actually think we've talked about on the podcast before, what are our initial thoughts of the Mad Optimist?
3: Uh, I was like, oh my God, don't coach them. Don't, I have to coach them. Like that was my feeling. Do the coaching. I know, my (laughs) feeling. And this is why sometimes like it's hard for me to watch the show because I'm just like, I need to coach them. Uh," (laughs) And you know, the sharks are the ones that are just like, no, I'm out, I'm out or whatever. Right. So it was an interesting concept that you could customize your soaps, but that should probably be a premium, right? It was sort of like, wow, that's a lot of labor because I guess they make each individual soap per order. And they let you design the packaging, Mm -hmm. which also just from a sourcing perspective, I was like, I was getting so stressed out, (laughs) so stressed out. And then they're like, well, but it's also a sliding scale because we want this accessible to everybody. And so then they're letting people choose the price. Here's my issue. Customers have decision fatigue. I think the whole concept was interesting, maybe not the best business model to make money but interesting. The thing is, is that they're not realizing the conversion by giving the customer all the things and all the decisions is actually going to put them into like paralysis of not being able to make the decision. So I feel like it's like pick one, is it customized or is it sliding scale? Cause if it was sliding scale and I could pick whatever it was, then that way that's like just one decision. How much do I want to pay for the soap and what do I value it at? Or oh, I get to customize it, but I'm going to pay a premium for the soap because I get to customize it. That's like not even realizing they think they're doing good, but actually probably there's a frustration for the customer.
0: That's exactly what I thought. I thought they were a little bit uncoachable because it was hard for them to hear the feedback from the sharks. I went on their website and it was cool to a certain point. It was, here's, you can choose a base, 20 options. You can choose a scent, 20 options. Doesn't mm-hmm. even tell you the benefit of what eucalyptus could do and things like that. And then you get to the packaging, which was actually my favorite part. Packaging was bright. It was really cool. And then there's the sliding scale I think what they need to do is clarify who their customer is so then the customer can go and say, "Ooh, I understand they're doing good, but it goes towards this sort of thing." You know, even Bala, they do things towards hunger, right? And other people do things towards glasses for kids in third-world countries. I think they have to pick something so then I can go there and know, "Oh, it's not the sliding scale that I'm doing giving people something back. It's that they're buying something which I recommend to them and then then the customer knows, oh, this is going towards animal rights or something like that. Then it makes it a little bit more clear because in this case, it's just so broad. I went on there and I thought, okay, I know they're trying to do good, but I have no idea what the do good part is. So I think that they're missing the part that if they were to make more money, they could actually give more and create a bigger impact.
3: That's what I think one of the sharks said. Yeah. One of the sharks was like, you know, you have to make money to be able to give money back. When we coach our students on this, we kind of say like, give them decisions, but with guardrails. So people feel the customization, but they don't actually customize, right? It's like, you can pick this band or that band and this scent or that scent. So, I think that to me, honestly, like while all the other stuff is so innovative and interesting, that's probably like for me their downfall of not realizing they're actually not helping their customers.
1: Yeah. I mean, these guys came on and they were very open that they were looking for marketing expertise. The biggest thing I'm worried about is that they seem to be people with strong beliefs strongly held, mm. which means they're not going to be open to marketing advice. And I think that both Mina and Jacqueline, you've brought up really valid points about their marketing strategy, which is like, who's your target persona? Do you have too much choice? So that conversion rate's going to go way down. Are you actually pricing your product in a way that's going to allow you to accomplish your objectives as a business and invest how you want to invest? And what I'd be a little concerned about is it doesn't seem like they're actually open to that sort Sort of feedback. The point on too much customization, I think is a really interesting one. Like I think there's a lot of research that shows creativity within constraints is the most successful form of creativity. I think there's also been a lot of research to show that giving people faux choice actually mm-hmm. results in the same amount of psychological benefit of true choice, yes. which is like going through a survey that helps you like land on one of four pre-made soaps, like gives people almost as much benefit as like fully customizing it. Like, I actually don't know if I want charcoal in my soap. Do I want charcoal in my soap? I don't know. Who's to say? Who's to say? (laughs) I'm a man and that sounds manly, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds manly. Doesn't
3: it? It reminds me of like when I've taken my kids to a toy store and said, okay, you guys have 30 bucks, spend whatever you want. And then it's like, they stop, they don't. It's too much. If I told them no, they would Mm. find everything in that toy store for me to buy them, (laughs) right? But I'm like, go for it. And they can't do it. And so I think that's kind of the same idea, but that's the thing. What problem are they actually solving? Sure. We all need soap but do we all need to customize our soap? Like we ripped the package off as well, right? So it's that pretty package that's coming, but like, do we really need that? So it's sort of like, What's the need, want, or desire that they're meeting? And sure, somebody wants to really customize their soap, great, but do they really want to customize their soap?
1: We learned this at Trunk Club. At Trunk Club, we had a whole sign-up form, and we did so much testing on it, right? It's like digital marketers, you're like, oh, we got to test it. We got to test the sign-up flow like over and endlessly. And turned out longer sign-up flows for Trunk Club actually perform much better in terms of monetization because the more questions people answered, the more committed they got to the idea that they were going to get an outcome that was going to be really successful 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 for them, and that the choices that we showed them in terms of clothing were going to be something that fit them better. And so there was a lot of counterintuitive dynamics at play that they could actually like totally tap into.
0: Such a good point. Yeah. I wanted to bring up that it's not just soap, though. They sold lip balm, body oil, and bath soaks or something like that. And 80% of their money was coming from the soaps. And this is how Jacqueline and I teach is that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your products. They need to focus on the soap. and They need to make it very clear what type of customer is going to buy that particular soap. Because their whole customization piece and the really cool packaging is that you're going to potentially gift it to somebody. But am I really going to customize the soap to gift it to somebody? I have no idea what to gift that person. I have no idea what Jacqueline wants on her skin. I don't know if John wants charcoal, even if it sounds very manly. (laughs) Clearly I'm
1: manly enough that, that charcoal would play.
0: <laughs> it's an exfoliator, right. John, just so you know.
1: <laughs> My face is bright red in the next episode, like,
0: thanks, Mina. <laughs> right? I have no idea if that's the target market. If you're trying to draw people in with packaging and that being an appeal and them being a mad scientist of themselves, then is it truly a giftable item? Is that the piece that you're solving for them, the desire that they want? I got really kind of lost in the narrative. They come in and it's
2: the mad optimist. And I really don't know what that means, but apparently it's yeah. soaps, right? And then their whole thing was like, as Muslims, they didn't have as much options when it came to soap because they didn't want to be using animal fat, right? So that's a huge, huge narrative in terms of why it needs to be vegan and like giving people choice. But then suddenly there's all these customizations and like that came out of nowhere. So I found myself struggling to connect the dots. And I was just curious about your take on like the branding of even calling this the Mad Optimist. Yes, you're like very, very optimistic even though you haven't made that much money in seven years. Lifetime sales were like 800,000. What was your thoughts on like the branding itself
3: for like a soap line? If you were more niched, If this was now a vegan, halal, organic brand that we could pitch in that way, I was vegan for five years. You know, if I knew that it was so clean and so perfect that people in a religion would follow it, then it almost backs it up more. It was very disjointed. It was very cute for a show to come out looking Mm -hmm. like mad scientists that were also super optimistic, but maybe slightly too optimistic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think they could have named it something like happy vegan soaps or something. And it could have been a little bit clearer. And then you know that you're gifting a soap that's vegan at least, you know, for somebody. And then that was the other part too, is that you actually have to name that soap. Some people are not great at naming things. The whole thing is very confusing.
1: They basically pitched themselves as scientists, but they weren't particularly scientific. I think the sliding pricing scale is super innovative. Like, what a cool idea. But they didn't present it as though like, hey, this is something we're testing out, and so far what we've seen is willingness to pay is actually higher. They're running seven different experiments right now, which does not follow the scientific method, my friends.
2: (laughs) They are the mad economists. (laughs) (laughs) You need some control,
1: you need control, okay? And I just kind of wish that they had been a little bit more scientific about the things that were particularly innovative about their model given where we are as a society, if they put a pricing page that basically said, do you want to pay more for this to support altruism? I bet a lot of people would click that button. 10%. Like, tipping yeah. is through the roof right now. Yes. And so yeah. there's probably a ton of experimentation they could do on that concept, but that should be their thing. Yes. And That's mm-hmm. what they should be known for, not right. seven or eight things. They pitched it as cause marketing and it probably should have been just pause their marketing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, pause or cause, ultimately the shark's, Well, most of them went out, but one did not. And (laughs) these founders were able to seal a deal with Mark for $60,000 for 20%. But it was really interesting to see that cause alignment come out because the caveat of the founders were actually that whatever proceeds happened on the day that the episode aired, they would be donating 100% of the proceeds. Because I think they were filming during Ashura, which is like a holiday holiday. And Mark was actually totally fine with it. So ultimately, the deal was made with Mark. I do think that Mark, in terms of an investor, is very open sometimes to experimentation. This is not like a huge, high-risk investment. It did seem like he was really open to seeing where they could take it.
1: We've had a lot of feedback on their business model and on them. But I will say one thing is very clear is they are passionate and they are good-hearted people. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they got this deal, I'm happy for them. I hope it was successful.
0: They had that transparency model. You can go to their website and see if they're successful or not because of their Mm -hmm. transparency model. Hey, they're doing a million dollars annual revenue now. That's amazing. Good for
2: them. Currently also selling direct to consumer. And now you can also find them on Amazon. I guess you can get some basic products on Amazon and then customize on their website. So they're still around. Still trucking. Well, last in the tank, we have Tentacle. And Tentacle comes to us from founder Hans, and he comes walking in in a huge octopus inflatable with some flippers. He's asking the sharks in this getup for $200,000 for 10%, which is a $2 million valuation. And his business is the aptly named Tentacle, which is an octopus-inspired suction mount designed to empower go-getters to do their thing better hands-free. So it is kind of what it sounds like. It's a mount that you can use on your phones or your cameras, your tablets as a car mount that just has like so many different suction cups. So it just like sticks wherever you put it. So it's kind of a combination between like a car mount and a tripod with a bunch of suction cups on it. So thinking about our product and our immediate pitch of how this lets you go hands-free, what are we thinking initially of Tentacle? My favorite part was
0: him he was awesome. (laughs) Personality. (laughs) Yeah. His personality was great. He was kind of the opposite of the Mad Optimist guys. He was willing to do whatever it took. And he was super coachable and receptive to everything that the Sharks were saying. And I think that that will make him super successful because of that.
3: Yeah. I thought it was genius the way that when he made the pitch, how he showed all the uses for it. So I loved how it had all the equipment. It had like a baby stroller. It had all these other things. But the coolest part was when he lifted up the surfboard using the tentacle he stuck it to and he showed how it could lift so you're like oh that has good grip i also loved how he dumped out that entire bin of all the other equipment he's like this replaces all of that just such good visuals i also think that the color because he came as a designer from the surf industry again it kind of goes back to like Ibala getting the idea of color Mm -hmm. and minimalistic design and ease that i think is so Important right now for the consumer.
1: Yeah, it was a powerful pitch. I I think everyone watching it was like, I kind of need one of these. Like, and even Mm -hmm. if I don't know what I need it for right now, I know I'm gonna need it at some point. I will say though, for someone who talked about the need for multiple limbs, it was kind of ironic that he only had like one distribution channel, which was paid Facebook ads. Mm -hmm. And so to me, this is a perfect example of a business that really could thrive with the help of a shark. Yes. Right. Because the sharks are very experienced at driving distribution on multiple channels. Mina, I think you are a straight up Amazon expert. Mm -hmm. How would you bring this to market on Amazon? What would you do with this?
0: I think that he has to make it very clear who it's for. Most people, 80% of them will just look at photos. Also, I think that there's something to his creativity aspect. For example, on TikTok or showing it on Amazon, the most creative and the most successful creators are the ones that show these really cool things like they open up the refrigerator and the camera's in the refrigerator. In the A mom's probably not going to buy it. A content creator, yes, absolutely. So it puts you in the right category on Amazon. And then you're able to send people because TikTok, for example, the commerce on there is built off of Amazon affiliates, Amazon loves sales velocity. So the thing with that is that you have to have a bunch of reviews and a bunch of sales all at the same time in a certain amount of time. So you could blitz it, right? And then that brings your bestseller ranking way up. So that's how I would do it because affiliates and influencers, especially in social media, they understand how the game works. And I think that that's how I would do it personally. I was confused because he had said, you know, he had done a bunch of iterations
3: because he was getting certain reviews on Amazon. So it sounded like maybe he was on it, but wasn't going the right way. Decided to go full on Facebook ads and direct to consumer distribution, but it is a lot of money. And we really teach our students about diversification because the idea is is like having multiple streams of revenue. If one taps out, which we've helped other inventors with things like where they were direct-to-consumer Facebook ads. It was costing them so much money. And then they did get a channel like Amazon and they're hitting $2 million a year right now on a single channel, but still have direct-to-consumer accessible in case something happens. They have an email list. They have all these other things. So I agree with you, you know, kind of as the onion got peeled back, it was so solid in the beginning. And then as you start to actually get into the nitty-gritty of the business, it's like, huh? Yeah. It's rotten. It is a
2: rotten (laughs) onion because this business is in so much debt. So for all that it's selling, I think last year, as of the episode, it's like $478,000. Yeah. Well, last month, as of the episode, it was like $9,000 in sales. So it looks like they were not a multi-channel machine, as you said, because as soon as Facebook dried up, they landed themselves in $270,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. So it's like a case where it's a really good product. And I think we all had those aha
0: moments. But as a business, yeah, we got to hate the debt. <laughs> 270, you can make that. We have a business that we worked with there called Dome Doc. They built their business. We got them to the first million based off Facebook ads. Now, Facebook algorithm changed. we all know this, and it dried up, right? So they then moved to Amazon and mm-hmm. they made their next million in the t- first 10 months that they were on there. So they're at $2 million now. And they also did it by tapping into their email list because the thing is you've already acquired those people. And this is what we mean by multi-stream machine is that you've already acquired those people. Let's see what other legs that you can stand on with the least amount of effort. Existing customers are always the way to go. So I think that he could have made up that debt very easily. So while it was risky to the investors, he could just tap into the emails that he got yeah. and very easily with an email expert recoups that debt.
1: Yeah. I agree with you, but it is scary as an investor to be like, okay, I'm going to put $200,000 into a company that's $270,000 in debt. If that business goes out of business tomorrow, my money just goes to the debtors. I get nothing as an equity holder because debt holders are higher on the cap table than equity holders. And so I think that's the thing that makes it so tricky for an investor. And I feel like in the end, he got just got very lucky that Damon related so much to his story. Sometimes that happens in investing where someone just like the story an entrepreneur hits. sees another entrepreneur and It's just like, I believe in you and I have seen this movie before and I want to support, you know, I want to make it happen for you.
2: So ultimately, as John mentioned, yes, Damon resonated so hard for this entrepreneur and sealed the deal for $200,000 for 30%. And I think the founder tried to lower it a little bit, but Damon was not budging. He was like, if you need me on your side, it's going to be 30%. So after the deal with Damon, bit of a company update. After this episode aired, all of the products, like all of the products this entrepreneur had sold out. In five minutes, five minutes after this episode aired. So six weeks after the episode aired, they had made upwards of $375,000 in sales. So they were definitely not doing so bad. It was one of those situations where I think Damon was a really good shark partner, but you know, the clout of being on Shark Tank definitely helped this business kind of grow to where it needed to be so they can continue to sort of keep growing and keep going.
3: Did you know that Mina and I both separately, before we knew each other, applied to be on Shark Tank with our products? I didn't. Can you tell me that story? (laughs) I was in my (laughs) 20s with my cuffs Couture and I made it to like the second or third round where I had like a video interview. But I remember so specifically, and this goes back to Tentacle, is that they were like, do not say you want to come on for marketing because you're going to get the marketing. So I think the thing that you were saying about Tentacle is so true. We actually have a really good friend that was on Shark Tank and did not have a shark. It was House of Noah and House of Nomad. And Liz didn't get the shark, but her business grew to like, $10, $11 $10, 11000000 million a year just from wow. being on the show. And I think that sometimes people can keep up with it and grow. And then there's people who it'll wipe them out. I think from the marketing perspective, he just really needed that exposure. So he knew Facebook ads was the thing he needed, the exposure and people would get it. And then he ended up getting it and the deal and the continuation of a great partnership. So win, win, win. (laughs) You know, what about you when you interviewed?
0: Yeah. So this was back in, I want to say 2007 or something like that. So I have a labels company I sell primarily on Amazon and it's called Little Labels. And I went on and I got all the way to the video round. So the round before they start recording with people. Mm -hmm. So I had to record my own video on my own, send it in. It's like a practice run. The next round would be that you record with them. And then still you don't know if it's going to show up. It might or might not run at that point. It was cool. The producer that I worked with, she said that I was in the video round, which is like I said, so close to the final round out of 42,000 people.
1: wow! So
0: I got through a lot of rounds. So it was cool. (laughs) I'm glad though that I didn't get on there. I don't know if that was my path and mm-hmm. I'm happy with where I am now, but I think that a lot of times when you're seeing all these entrepreneurs, the reason why they might fail or not, might not be successful is because they don't have their back end in order. Mm-hmm. So for example, they don't have the inventory, they don't have the pricing correct, they don't have you know the photos correct. This is what we teach our students in Multi-Stream Machine. They get the sales from Shark Tank, like mm-hmm. what Jacqueline is saying. But if they go on there and they already have the sales and they're doing well and the back end doesn't keep up with the front end, the front of the house, mm-hmm. then it's going to crumble. The foundation isn't there. The systems aren't there. So I think that that is why Tentacle, wow, that is a really great one because they had their back end in order. It was that they needed the front end.
2: So if you were a shark and you were giving someone a golden bite, so that could be to Ballabengles Bangles or the Mad Optimist or Tentacle, who is receiving your golden ticket, your golden bite?
0: I would go for Tentacle. Mm-hmm. Because I like the fact that he has the heart, he has the coachability. He also, there's lots of fun things with that octopus that he has, right? (laughs) The tentacle part, that it could be a character or he could be the character. He brings a personality that people want to buy from. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is super important. This guy's the potential and all it is, is marketing. It's like you could just dial in his marketing and it would sell a ton. So I think I would give it to him because I think that him in particular, and also his product has so much potential too.
3: I love that you said that because I was going to say tentacle as well, which is Mm -hmm. funny because originally like my business brain wanted me to go for Bala. Mm -hmm. But same like what you're saying, Mina, is the idea of the entrepreneur involved. And there was something just so appealing and a little bit of that underdog part where Bala was like, I feel like they were going to be inevitable either way. Now, of course, I would love to have a percentage of that business. So maybe that would be like the business brain. But the part of me that's like got that feeling for that person, I'm like, oh, they've got such an energy. They need a little bit of help. I could help them. I think that's where my golden bite would go. John, so who do you give your golden bite to?
1: I'm going with tentacle. I thought Hans was awesome. Boy, he's putting himself out there. He's trying real hard. It seems like he's got a great product. And to me, it is just so clear how he can just turn it around. There's so many tactics that I can just envision working for him so quickly. I think with Damon as a partner, I think he's going to take off and he's going to be really successful.
2: It seems like tentacles swept the golden bites. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. And thank you, Mina. This has been great. So fun. Thank you for
0: having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Jory. And thank you, John. It's been so much fun.
2: Today's episode was written and produced by the brilliant mind of Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. Are you following the show yet? Barbara, are you following? I'm out. (laughs) You know, she really is my favorite. You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe that's Apple Podcasts. Maybe that's Spotify. Maybe you're that one person in the world who still uses a Microsoft Zoom. RIP. Wherever works for you works for me, baby. That's it for me. For real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.